0: this time, um, he was in his 70s, late 70s, and he wasn't taking grad students. So I basically just made a very impassioned appeal. I went and I said, Look, I love your work. Um, I'm just going to be completely honest with you. I have zero desire to go into academia, which is good for you, because I you don't need to kind of supervise me in a sense of getting publications and all of this. I'm very self-driven, I'm very motivated myself, I'm going to design all of our studies, I'm going to do everything, all you have to do is just mentor me, basically.
1: Before getting into today's interview, I want to talk a little bit about a subject that I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks, and it was a little bit spurred on by a note that I got from a cognitive evolution listener named Nick, and he was interested in hearing a little bit more about uh, how I deal with the issue of self-doubt, and I want to take this opportunity to address some of the things that I've been thinking about on the subject because uh, I think that that's probably something that many of us are feeling in different varieties in the present moment. And uh, so to start off with, I definitely... Find myself often in a state of, of self doubt, uh, and especially with uh, different things that are happening in the present circumstances, and you know plans that I thought were going to work out one way, uh, they just don't they just don't go like that. And so I've I've, I've found that it feels hard. It, it doesn't it doesn't always feel like I'm making progress on stuff. And while I have managed to put out some, some podcasts, you know, I, I've honestly been struggling with my actual Ph.D. research. And that's definitely been frustrating. And I think, you know, a lot of my peers feel the same way. And so there are a couple general things that I try to keep in mind and which are even among my sort of driving life philosophies. And so the first is that self-doubt is often a sign that you are pushing yourself to do something that doesn't come easily and I mean that in a healthy way so if your goal is to minimize self-doubt that's easy you just stay in your comfort zone right but uh, whenever you challenge yourself to achieve something that isn't immediately in your grasp you're going to have those moments where you're not really sure whether you can do it and that is pretty much a guarantee when trying to do something new and difficult I have experienced moments of great self doubt at pretty much every point uh, where I've made a big change in my life. And, you know, to be honest, I haven't always handled it well, or at least it's been tough on me. So, for example, uh, I didn't start off on a path of academic achievement. I was a uh, pretty average student in high school. And when I started college at UCLA, I was in way over my head. My first semester, I got D's and C's. And it took me a while to get used to that environment. And there was a long time uh, when I wasn't sure whether I was going to be able to cut it. But in retrospect, that was really a sign that I was working to expand my capabilities. And if I had gone uh, straight from high school for, to somewhere even more competitive, uh, like, you know, Harvard or Oxford, I am. I'm pretty confident that I would have not have been able to do it. So uh, th- I think that the trick here is that there's a middle ground where you are pushing yourself uh, while not trying to tackle something that's too big. Uh, but at any rate, the, the key point is that the self-doubt you feel can, uh, it, can, it can be a signal that you're expanding your capacities in a healthy and even powerful way. So, the second thing that uh, I want to to mention is that there's a relationship between self-doubt and levels of abstraction. So what I mean is this the the more specific the goal you have, the more room for doubt there is. You know, so for example, if I have an idea for an essay, I might get halfway through it and then start to despair because it just doesn't seem good enough, and you know, I'll doubt whether or not. Uh, this idea is any good, whether or not I can do it justice, et cetera. You know, I can, I can get pretty down on myself about this sort of thing. So um, I might have self-doubt about that specific uh, idea, but does that mean that I doubt my much higher level goal of knowing that I want to write and tell stories and dig into interesting ideas? No way. Um, sure, in, in the moment, maybe... I start to feel like I might never be good enough at those things. But once that initial feeling passes, I know that whether or not this specific project is going to work out, I am going to find a way to achieve my larger, more abstract goals. Um, I think that's something that uh, we hear uh, sort of a similar echo of in today's interview with Maria Konnikova. But um, another example from my own life is that, um, you know, so do I often doubt that, I'll have a career as an academic and get a, you know, tenured job as a professor at an elite university. Absolutely. I am not certain about that at all. But then, on, on the other hand, do I doubt that I will find some cool way to study human behavior in my professional life, no matter what exactly uh, that career trajectory takes? Nope. I, I, I totally know that I can hit that goal as long as I want to do. And so uh, self-doubt... I think can creep in when we get tied to these specific goals um but there are so many different ways to get the high level thing that we want and the the reason or the the sort of force that governs this uh might you might might be best described as multiple realizability, and that is the idea that for any abstract goal, for example uh you know do something cool with the study of human behavior for a living. There are many, many different ways to get there. And while pretty much every important life goal is multiply realizable, we can often get fixated on one specific path there. And it's natural for that to happen. But at the end of the day, you sort of have to take the broader perspective and see that there are so many different ways to get what you actually want and that there is almost never an in-principle reason why you can't achieve some version of it. And um, so then there's a third thing that I want to mention here, which is specifically about the version of self-doubt that we think of as imposter syndrome in academia, right? So there is a reason that almost across the board, everyone uh, who does any sort of academic endeavor uh, feels inadequate to the task of being a quote-unquote intellectual. And it has to do with just how large the set of human knowledge is I think that sometimes we're tempted to think that it is a reflection of who we are um, and uh, you, you know like I said that feeling of inadequacy but really I think there are two key observations to make here one is that there is just so much to know about the way the world works and two because everyone's interests and their experiences differ, each human being is going to have a huge amount of knowledge that uh, any other person picked random off the street won't. So the reason that we feel like everyone else knows more than we do is because it is extremely easy to point to this unique set of knowledge uh, for every single person you meet, right? If you just take the things that they know that you don't and put that together with the things that everyone else knows, you're going to have this huge body of knowledge which uh, you feel sort of crushed under the weight of, right? So when you put it all together, um, you, you just, it, it becomes very easy to be aware of what everyone else knows that you don't. Um, and because you know, knowledge and, and intellect are the currency of academia, it's really easy to equate this disparity with our own value as a thinker, a researcher, a writer, or a scholar. And so uh, as compelling as this suspicion may feel that you're not good enough or smart enough or whatever it may be, um, there is a very legitimate sense in which it's simply an incorrect evaluation. Uh, I think ultimately, everyone has something unique to offer and your job is, and this is really the hard work of, of doing the whole thing, is to figure out what exactly that is and how best to express it. Um, so at any rate, that's just been something that is on my mind that uh, I've I've wanted to share, and I hope that some people maybe find some encouragement with it, and uh, you know that anyone who is struggling to to feel up to the tasks of the present moment will will find maybe some uh, uh, something useful in there. At any rate, uh, let's get to my interview today with Maria Konnikova. Um, I've wanted to talk to her for. A long time I, I look up to her in many ways because she is successful at a lot of the things that uh, you know I, I'd like to do throughout my career and um, you know uh, she received her PhD in psychology from Columbia and she is a staff writer at The New Yorker and has done a lot of interesting stuff along the way the um, I think the the moment when I when she first really got on my radar was actually, um a few years back when uh the eminent psychologist, best known for the marshmallow test, uh Walter Michelle passed away. And there was this uh piece in the New Yorker that was shared by a number of people in the psychology community um that was sort of a retrospective on um uh Michelle's life and, and who he was and, and, and the sort of legacy of 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 his thought and mentorship. And The piece was just so good it was written with authority from within the psychology community but but also with this sort of beautiful um almost literary writing and i was like okay okay so who but who wrote this and it was maria konnikova and then i started to look into her and it turns out there was this whole icebergs worth of incredible stuff um Taking a really interesting line, uh, straddling psychological research and journalism, and she has written most notably for The New Yorker, where she's been based at for for recent years. But also, as you'll you'll hear in the conversation, The Atlantic, Scientific American, uh, and she's also written two two previous books. And so I uh, sort of dug into her background and my own. you know, sort of just lo- looking into it, being fascinated with her. And uh, I-, I thought who she was and the way she thinks and the way she has been able to achieve, um, uh, you know, the goal of-, of being a writer and someone who expresses the psychological concepts that so many of us are interested in to a broader audience, uh, the way she was able to manifest this in her-, in her own career. So I've wanted to talk to her for a while. And the occasion to talk to her was that her new book is coming out. Uh, today, June 23rd, 2020. And um, this book seems like one of the most phenomenally interesting premises for a book that I have seen in many years. It is essentially that, so you have Maria Konnikova, who I just described, and she basically gets interested in, in a set of ideas, and then that set of ideas leads her to have to become a professional poker player in order to explore them. And if following one's academic and scholarly and journalistic instincts and ending up being a successful tournament-winning poker player is not the most badass thing you've ever heard, then please do send me a message. Because I would like to know what is. Uh, because I think that just sounds phenomenal. And uh, I've been so interested to hear about how she got into it, and I'm so excited to read the book, which I uh, made sure to order from my local bookstore, and I'm going to pick up on the morning that it comes out. Uh, But, uh, yeah, at any rate, I wanted to hear about uh, how Maria got to that point, and I think the result is incredibly interesting. So, at any rate, um, that is enough of me. I am extremely excited to introduce to you, Maria Konakova. Okay, so I want to start um, uh, by talking a little bit about your earlier life. So you um, you were born in Moscow. When did you come to the United States?
0: I came to the US when I was quite small. I was four years old, and we came in the winter. And my birthday's in the spring, so I turned five um, about, I would say, I don't remember the, the exact number of months, but let's say six months after we came to the US. So I was, I was a little kid, um, didn't speak a single word of English and was petrified by this whole experience. I cried all the time and did not want to leave because I was so scared of going to a country where no one would understand me. And in fact, I was so stressed out. We went um, through, as a lot of Soviet Jews did at the time, we went through Austria and Italy, and we actually lived for quite some time in in Italy before um, getting political asylum in the U.S. And apparently I would just completely pass out every day at the exact same time in the middle of dinner because I was just so stressed out that I, all I wanted to do was sleep. <laughs>
1: uh, and so did those did those fears prove well-founded?
0: Um. In some sense, yes, absolutely. I think the thing that scared me the most was that I wouldn't be able to communicate, that I didn't know the language. And I understood that very well, even though I was a small child. That was something that really frightened me, um, that no one would know what I wanted to say. And yeah, that that actually, that came to be. I came to kindergarten. I didn't understand a single word. And it was was not the best year. Um, But I'm a kid. And when you're four years old, when you're five years old, you pick up languages incredibly quickly. It's a miracle of the brain that we still don't understand. Um, But it happened. I learned English. And, you know, I think the luckiest thing that ever happened to me is that my parents decided to come to the United States. Who in the world knows what would have happened had we stayed in the Soviet Union? Because at the time, it was the Soviet Union.
1: Yeah. Um, So did you... uh... Did you always sort of carry that feeling of being uh, someone from somewhere else? Or did you start to acclimate so much so that you felt uh, sort of at the same uh, background as, as your classmates?
0: No, that feeling never really went away um, because we moved um, eventually. The, the place where I started school was a fairly affluent uh, suburb of Boston and we were able to move there because I actually had some low-income housing, so we we lived in assisted housing when I was little, and um, but that was I think they had one or two developments, and then the rest of the people were, you know, middle class, upper middle class, upper class. Um, it was a very kind of very whitewashed, very WASPy suburb um, of Boston. And, um, I not only was an immigrant, we we were poor. We didn't have any money. So I would wear, you know, secondhand clothing, um, and never really fit in in that sense. And in the third sense, I was Jewish, but I wasn't really Jewish because I was Soviet Jewish, which means basically an atheist. And we didn't celebrate any of the real Jewish holidays. Um, I ended up never having, about mitzvah you know it was just not um not important to me and there was a very strong jewish community in my town but the jewish community was jewish you know you went to synagogue you went to hebrew school you did you did all of these things so i didn't fit in there um but i also wasn't getting my first communion like the other classmates were doing so it was it was something where it took me a while and eventually i did make some friends i made some close friends um there's, you know, one person with whom I'm still friends to this day. Um, we live a few blocks apart in Brooklyn, um, and she's just the most incredible human being. And we ended up in very similar career paths. Um, but that's rare. Uh, most of the people I was friends with, I'm no longer really in touch with. Um, but but I was lucky that I did have a very kind of, I did have those core friends. Um, I had amazing family I had an amazing older sister who was always kind of my best friend and always had my back um, and tried to make sure that I wasn't getting bullied and would help me when I was crying in school because I didn't understand what was going on so I was very lucky in those in those ways but I don't think I felt like an insider basically ever um, throughout my high school experience it wasn't until I got to college that I really kind of found my people
1: yeah so what what Maybe what was that transition like where, so you were, you were in high school, what were you like in high school, and then when you went to Harvard, how did that change things?
0: I think the one thing I will say for myself, even in high school, was that because I was an outsider and it felt like an outsider, I didn't... I didn't necessarily feel the same need to conform because at some point I realized that I couldn't, that I was never really going to fit in. And I wanted to don't get me wrong, you know, it would have been wonderful to be this great popular kid, but I wasn't. and I and I figured and I figured out that that wasn't going to happen. So that actually gave me a lot of intellectual freedom. So I ended up taking a lot of independent studies. Um, I did things that were really weird, like I took. AP French when I was in ninth grade because I had learned French as a kid and was fluent at the time so could do that then I took you know French literature independent studies Spanish literature independent studies creative writing all of these things and I didn't listen to my guidance counselor who said you need more math you need more science my senior year I said you know I'm not taking any science classes I don't I don't like this Um, I want to take writing I want to take this and she said you know you're never going to this is crazy. Your GPA is amazing. Everything is great, but you're not going to get into college if you just go so lopsided. And I said, you know what? I don't care. I'm just going to do this. And obviously I did end up going, you know, going to the college of my choice um, and it all worked out. But I think that having that outsider status actually kind of gave me the strength to do things like that. And that is a trait of my personality that has remained uh, very very strong throughout my entire life um i will do what i want to do and follow my own curiosity and follow my own passion um despite what people around me might say and sometimes it's very scary um i've quit jobs without another job and with no money so i've made very strange career choices i mean i left the new yorker to become a professional poker player because i wanted to write a book about it another very strange career choice so that uh that's something that's really been I think a force for good so that's how that's how something quite negative turned into something quite positive
1: yeah I I'm sure that that will be a motif that comes up throughout whatever part of your uh you know career and trajectory we talk about um so when did you when did you first know that you wanted to become a professional writer
0: Always, always. Um, I don't remember this myself, but my family, and this was independently corroborated by all family members, told me that when I was about six years old, something like that, I announced at dinner that I was going to be a writer when I grew up. And um, I wrote my first book, I think, when I was in first grade. It was about trolls. I remember this very well because I couldn't draw, and trolls were very popular at the time. I don't know if you remember the troll dolls they had kind of all sorts of crazy colored hair um, and were made you know, out of, I think it was some, some sort of plastic. Anyway, they were incredibly popular and I um, ended up writing a book about them and I couldn't draw them. So I got this girl in our class who could draw really well to draw the illustrations for the troll books. Um, and I that's what I always wanted to do. Um, that's what I always enjoyed doing. And it's funny, I don't remember how passionate I was about it at the time, but um, many years later, so my first grade teacher, who was just this incredible, incredible woman, Mrs. Parker, who was really nurturing and really just all, all the children adored her. So when um, I went back, she retired and then there was this big ceremony for her many years later And they asked all of her old students to come, and I came, and I was, I I don't remember if I was a senior in high school or had just started college, but anyway, it was many years later, and she looked at me, and she said, you know, Maria, um, how was your writing? Um, are Are you still writing? And that was the question she asked me, and it was so incredible that, like, that was the one thing about me that she remembered.
1: Yeah, wow. Uh, and then, so how? Okay, so how did things start to fall into place? then when you got into college, right? When you knew you had this bent towards towards letters, and then of course you you developed an interest uh, in psychology, which I'm sure was uh, uh, there earlier, if 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 not exactly manifest in the courses you took. So how did how did things start to fall into place then?
0: Well, it it was really nonlinear. So yes, I always wanted to be a writer, but at some point in when I was in high school or junior high and I was reading all of these amazing novels by all these amazing writers, I thought, Oh my God, I can never do this. I'm just not going to be a writer. Um, I'm still very interested in it. I'll still take these classes, but this isn't for me. I can never be this good. Um, and I did at some point in high school realize that I love psychology. We, we had an amazing high school, um, it's a public school, but amazing classes and teachers And uh, we had an AP psychology class. And um, I took that and we read. I remember one of the summer reading books was Oliver Sacks the man who mistook his wife for a hat. And I just fell in love. I said, Oh, my God, this is incredible. I love the human brain. And um, when I went to college, I thought, you know, um, I'm at Harvard, and I want to take all these psych classes but i really like i also love the work of steven pinker because we'd already we'd also read some of his books and he was at mit and i thought well you know i'm going to ask if i can cross register i want to take some classes with him at mit and actually my freshman year they announced that they had gotten uh, steve pinker to come over from mit to harvard so i was able to take classes with him right there and he ended up becoming um, a mentor and an advisor um for my undergraduate thesis, and is still someone who I can turn to at at any time for anything. And he became a bit of a role model in the sense of combining psychology and popular writing and popularizing all of this. Uh, so I was incredibly lucky to have made that connection. But at that time, um, it actually, you know, it was the psychology, and it wasn't writing. And it wasn't until about my junior year that I just. I missed it so much and I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I um, applied to a creative writing class to a fiction workshop and I didn't tell anyone because a lot of people would apply and only a handful would get accepted because I didn't want to have to tell people and have people asking, oh, have you heard back yet? All of this stuff. So I applied. I ended up getting in and ended up basically devoting my last two years of college I took all the fiction writing I could um, and graduated both with a senior thesis and a portfolio, a writing portfolio. Um, And that was that except, you know, when you graduate from college, it's really hard to say, I want to be a writer, especially when you have no money and when you don't have any connections. I didn't know anyone. I didn't know how the writing world worked. know, I was very naive when it came to that. And so I had to try to think of alternative ways. So it was actually many a few years until I was able to start writing regularly and even longer working at full-time jobs and doing other things until I was able to start publishing.
1: Yeah. Okay. So what, um, so I want to talk about the Steven Pinker relationship a little bit, um, uh, is there any like big thing that stands out that you've learned from him that's like, oh, yeah, this is one of the big things that I took with me?
0: Yeah, don't give a damn what anyone thinks or says about you. <laughs> and realize that everything you say can and will be taken out of context and read the fucking article because so many people misquote Steve all the time because they don't actually take the time to read what he says and instead take some sort of polarizing remark and um, take it completely out of context so i think he's real. he really inspired the way i approach literature the way I, i mean scientific literature the way that i approach actually social media twitter all of that i will not tweet anything i will not do anything before i actually read it whenever i write about psychology i always track down the source because you have no idea how many times. People will have been misquoted over and over and over for like the last 30 years and you finally track down the original study and you see it doesn't say at all what people said that it says. And I think that it really added depth to my writing when I write about psychology because I go way back in time. I will never write about a single study. I will always see exactly where the theories are coming from, where everything is coming from, um, and it's advice I, I would give to any writer I mean, find the roots and and figure out, you know, what people are really saying and follow your passion. Because, you know, a lot of people forget. A lot of people will say, oh, you know, Steven Pinker, you know, pop psych, blah, blah, blah. The guy revolutionized how we understand language. He revolutionized a lot of our approach to cognitive psychology. Um, So, you know, take everyone's career as a whole, and realize what they've done and what they've accomplished. And I still think that he and Oliver Sacks are the two best um, writers psychology has ever given the world.
1: Yeah, that is to me one of the interesting and important lessons of uh, Steve's career is that no matter how good you are, no matter how uh, much of your diligence you do, people are always going to say, all of this stuff in, in every in every direction like oh, you don't know what you're talking about, you're not rigorous enough, you're completely misguided and I think no matter uh, wh- whether whether or not you, you agree with Pinker's positions on, on 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 certain things it just seems like logically based on who he is and, and what he's done if you actually look at the work itself, so much of that stuff just seems like wow uh, that's that's so out there in terms of criticism. And uh, so yeah, it's just it just goes to show. That, like, look, no matter who you are, how a uh, solid uh, you've uh, solidly you've done your work. Um, and, but but then there's another thing here, which is that a lot of what has inspired people to be interested in him is that he's taken what have turned out to be controversial positions on 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 important topics. Though my understanding is that he doesn't think of it in terms of. Um, uh, being controversial in fact he I I, I read one time that he is consistently surprised to find out that people are sort of up in arms about whatever he uh, has been saying because he just feels like it's the reasonable stance to take Uh, so how do you think about the role of of being controversial in your own um, uh, writing since it is such a a, a big way of drawing viewers but it can lead you astray from from what you um, uh, you know are interested in
0: you know, I, I just try not to think about it at all um, in the sense that I write about what interests me and I write about what I want to write about. And if it ends up being controversial, so be it. My goal is to write the best thing I possibly can, write it as even handedly as I possibly can um, and do, you know, do the best job I can on any given topic. And controversy is going to arise when you least expect it. I mean, The hate mail I've gotten for my um, work—only one of the things did I expect. So, for I've been um, for I don't know how many years, at least over four years of my full-time writing career, um, I was kind of at the New Yorker predominantly, um, and then full-time. And so, most of the most of the articles that I've written have been for the New Yorker, Um, and so. I'll just I'll just give you a few examples there. The one where I expected criticism and got criticism is when I wrote about um, Jonathan Haidt's work um, on liberal bias in academia and how um, that was actually a problem. I knew I'd get pushback for it. I did. But I was very happy to defend myself because I thought it was a very important topic. So that I that I got. Um then I actually got hate mail when I wrote about, about infant development, and the headline was a little bit provocative. Um, I didn't write the headline, but I thought the headline was hilarious, and I didn't ask anyone to change it. It was something like, um, how are humans so smart when babies are so dumb? And people just lost it. and were like, my baby is so smart. My kid is so smart. What are you talking about? How, are you, how dare you call my, my child dumb? and this was one of those read the article situations but people just hated it and then i wrote about um, how owning pets can actually be bad for your health there was a lot of work that showed that it was very financially stressful it was stressful in a lot of emotional ways and that you know people just assume that having pets is good and that's a baseline assumption but sometimes you need to question it and figure out okay you know where Where does the research come out at the end of the day? And people just tore me apart for that. That was, you know, people love their pets and don't want to consider the fact that there might be some drawbacks to owning them. And I really didn't expect that either. So, you know, controversy will come from very different directions. And oh, talk about controversy. I have a new book coming out, The Biggest Bluff, about my time in the world of professional poker. I have been called just a heathen, um, someone who is ruining the morality of America, the morality of the world, a degenerate. I mean, you name it. I've been called it over the last few years. People either think it's awesome or refuse to understand what I'm doing, think poker is a sin, think it's evil gambling, and think I'm promoting a sinful existence to the country.
1: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking uh, all about your sinful habits and that sort of stuff. Um, I, I, I do want to ask about your PhD at Columbia though, because I know you, you went into it, not planning to become an academic. Um, so how did you, um, did you, did you finally realize it was time to take some of those science classes that you had put off for so long (laughs)
0: No. or what was the, what
1: was the thought process there? (laughs)
0: Um, I still, this is, this is terrible. I still really, other than psychology, do not find science particularly interesting I love good science writers and I love writing reading them you know I can read Ed Yong on any scientific um, topic disclaimer he's a friend but he's a just a brilliant writer um, I can you know there are people who will make anything interesting but I have zero interest in reading basic science in in those in those types of uh, environments and I certainly do not want to take an anatomy class or any biology classes or anything like that Um, the reason um, this is, it it was very practical. The reason I went back to graduate school is that I'd been working in television and I was just completely drained and I wasn't able to work on my own writing because it was a 24 seven job. I mean, I would travel for it. I I was a producer um, and I was just on and it was, it was, uh, we would tape late at night Um, we, We had to be available on weekends. It was a very stimulating job in a lot of ways, but it also just made me completely unable to work on my own stuff. And that was it was emotionally draining for me in a lot of ways. But that was that was an important thing that I just felt very out of place because I have been used to writing all of the time. And while I would still write a little bit, it was it's very difficult to to write when you're just exhausted and I didn't have Saturdays and Sundays to write anymore which is what I used to do and I used to you know write in the evenings after coming home from work when I had other jobs I couldn't do that because the show taped so late so I didn't have evenings so so it was just um, a lot of that and I and I realized I had to leave but I really wanted to write And so I was actually deciding, I was like, I'm going to go to grad school. And I was deciding between a PhD and an MFA. And I said, you know what, I love psychology, I want to learn more about the mind, this will be also an opportunity to write. Um, And when you get a PhD, you're paid, you don't have to pay. If you go for an MFA, you go into debt, I'm still in debt from college, I can't afford it. So um, that was the choice between MFA and PhD. And then I really wanted to work with one specific person, Walter Michelle, who's a legend of psychology, known to most people outside it as the marshmallow dude, um, the guy who did the marshmallow studies back in the 50s and 60s um, about delay of gratification, you know, can you wait for your marshmallow or not? And at this time, um, he was in his 70s, late 70s, and he wasn't taking grad students. So I... Basically just made a very impassioned appeal. I went and I said, look, I love your work. Um, I'm just going to be completely honest with you. I have zero desire to go into academia, which is good for you because I you don't need to kind of supervise me in a sense of getting publications and all of this. I'm very self-driven. I'm very motivated myself. I'm going to design all of our studies. I'm going to do everything. All you have to do is just mentor me, basically. Um, please, 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 you know, here's my background. Here's all this stuff. It obviously it helped that I had a recommendation from Steve because it ends up that Walter gave Steve his first job um, in academia. You know, it's a small world. So, you know, all of these things came together um, and Walter agreed. So I became his final grad student. And it was, I think, one of the defining relationships of my life. Um, And I feel incredibly lucky that he was so open-minded and said, you know what? I love that you want to write. I love that you don't have academic ambitions. To be perfectly honest, if I were going into academia right now, I probably wouldn't because I really hate what academia has become. Um, he he was someone who believed that you should have outside interests. He was not one of these people who thought you should be you know, 100% in academia, 100% focused on that because he thought that that just made you a shallow thinker and he was very upset that that's where academia was heading that you were penalized rather than rewarded for having broad interests that you had to publish at such an insane pace i mean obviously walter is someone whose publication record is insane but if you look at his early career he published a few papers before getting his first job at harvard um so so that's what he wanted to go back to to people who did solid work And could, you know, take a year to publish a paper. And so he was, it's very rare in academia to have someone support you if you say you're not going into academia. So I think I probably got one of the only advisors in the world who would have been okay with that. So my, I mean, whenever students ask me about this, I say, don't, don't do what I did. um, If you actually want to get in, because I didn't care if I didn't get in ultimately, Um, I was very ready to walk away if this specific thing didn't work out. Um, But if you really want to get in, most people don't want to hear that you don't want to go into academia. That's just, you know, that's kryptonite to grad school.
1: Yeah, wow. Um, Okay, and then before we get into your uh, uh, current project, I want to ask a little bit about your first book, which was um, Mastermind, uh, uh, and it was... Uh, about how to think like Sherlock Holmes. And so I'm curious, uh, how did that project start? And did you know, when you sort of embarked on that, that it was going to turn into a book? What was the sort of genesis of that?
0: I, so when I was in grad school, um, I started writing for um, the popular press, I did, you know, a few articles here and there, um, and then uh, was able to get a few things published in Scientific American, and they gave me, and I had a really, you know, I had a very different approach, and they gave me a column. Um, They said, you know, this is pretty cool, you can try it out. And so my column pitch was, um, they didn't just give me a column, I pitched it, um, was called Literally Psyched, um, and it was about the intersection of psychology and literature. I said, I want to write, you know, I'm going to write about novels and i'm gonna write about you know all of these different things i mean i had i don't i i think that they're all archived online somewhere i hope they are um because i don't have actually a lot of the originals um but um you know i remember writing about um huckleberry finn and all of these just i I wrote about dune you know i would write about what i was reading and draw psychology lessons and all of these things from what I was studying at Columbia. And one of the columns was about Sherlock Holmes, but really it was about mindfulness. And I had wanted to write about mindfulness. And, um, this was back before anyone knew what mindfulness was in, you know, in the popular world, obviously millions of people knew what mindfulness was, but it wasn't a buzzword. It wasn't kind of a hot topic. So I wanted a way to really Describe mindfulness and explain it, and it brought me back to Sherlock Holmes, which was one of the earliest books I remember from my childhood. Um, my dad would read it to us when when I was small, and I hadn't reread it as an adult at all, but I remembered this scene between Sherlock Holmes and Watson, where Holmes asks Watson how many steps lead up to two twenty one B Baker Street, and Watson doesn't know. And Holmes says, that's the difference between us. I, You only see. I both see and observe. And I didn't remember the exact quote, but I remember the scene. And so I just googled, you know, 221 B Baker Street steps, Holmes Watson, got the story, read the story. I was like, this is brilliant. This is exactly what mindfulness is about. Wrote the column. It did really well. I think it was my most read piece. Um, people loved it. And then I also, when I, after I reread that Sherlock Holmes story, I thought, wow, this is really good. I want to reread all of Sherlock Holmes. So I started rereading them. And, and I just thought, wow, this is a gold mine. There's just so much psychology here. So I started writing, basically, I did a sub column of my column. I said, you know, for, for a few months, I'm going to do lessons from Sherlock Holmes because this is so cool. People loved it. And that's when I realized, you know, this might actually be a book. And that's where Mastermind came from.
1: Wow! And so, yeah, so uh, that's that's really cool. When did what was that point where you realized, hey, uh, I want to? So, did, did you did you construct the book proposal and send it out to agents based off of the um, uh, Scientific American pieces? Mm. What did that process look like?
0: Um, no, I got really lucky. Um, an editor saw the pieces and actually it reached out to me so it ended up um going out in exclusive submission um and I had agents reach out to me too so I um I had a very unusual situation where someone really liked what I wrote um and reached out and said hey do you you know do you have representation do you have a home for this and um so I ended up you know, I, I ended up not going out very broadly and um, just submitting it to this one editor. And in, I mean, I'm eternally grateful that that happened that way. In retrospect, I would have wanted, you know, to get more opinions. But, um, you know, at the moment, I just was very excited and, you know, got got incredibly lucky. It was a wonderful press. Um, I was published by Viking, and then um, I ended up taking um, a leave of absence from Columbia to finish the book. So I took a semester off. I still graduated on time, though, because I, you know, didn't care about the academic publication side. Um, and am someone who is very, very organized and motivated when it comes to kind of getting stuff done. I'm the most disorganized person in the world when it comes to you know, my process and all of that. But I'm very good at, you know, getting things done. So I, you know, I knocked out a lot of years of research in a much shorter period of time um, and was able to defend on time, even though I went on a leave of absence to write Mastermind. And then I got very lucky um, that Mastermind did well. It hit a nerve. um, It ended up coming out right around the time that Sherlock Holmes was becoming popular and, Um, Sherlock, the BBC series came out and elementary came out. And then I got accused of riding the Sherlock Holmes train. And I wanted to tell people, guys, I sold this book several years ago. I had no idea that this was going to happen, but, um, I think it, it kind of caught the winds of a popular zeitgeist at the moment. And, um, that helped it sell well so that I was able to kind of then convert that into other writing, um, and be able to write full-time when I left Columbia,
1: yeah, no, that's that's amazing. That's 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 awesome timing. And then, but I'm I'm just curious. So when you say uh, okay, you know, maybe I could have looked a little bit more broadly. Do you have anything in mind on, you know, uh, is there something that you missed out on that you would have liked to have, or what's the idea there?
0: No, I mean, I I I would never want to say that. Like I said, I'm eternally grateful to my first editor. Um, I think that Viking did a wonderful job. It's just, I think that everyone, no matter what you're doing, you should really just look at all of the options and not when something great comes along, not be like, yes, I'm just going to grab this right away. Um, So I I just think it's a good life lesson um, to just take a step back and say, okay, you know, this might be the best thing, but, you know, maybe I should, you know, have an agent who will shop it around um, maybe I should look at a few different options. Maybe I should get a few different perspectives just because I think that also challenges you. You know, for my, my last book, um, I, we, I went out broadly and met with a lot of editors and then was able to see, oh, you know, this editor is not quite aligned with me on my vision for the book. This editor has kind of this other agenda. this editor completely gets me. Um, That's you know you can you actually have points of comparison rather than being like oh my god this is a great press and this seems like a great editor let's do it so I just think that you need especially when you're entering a new world and you don't really know what's going on I just think it's a good habit um, a good rule of thumb to um, just do your homework do your research and I didn't um, because I was a complete newbie um, I didn't know what was going on and i was really nervous and i didn't trust myself and so i didn't trust myself to to look around and to kind of do my research i thought oh well if people smarter than i am are telling me to, that this is great then i should just listen to them and i just don't think that that's ever the best approach
1: and so it was um wasn't it after that book came out that you got your first piece published in the new yorker
0: yes Um, So that book gave me a much wider platform, the fact that, you know, I could say that I was a New York Times bestselling author was really important, the fact that at that point, so I, when the book came out, I was able to start freelancing much more broadly. So I had a cover story in Scientific American Mind, Um, I had a piece, you know, a few pieces in The Atlantic, Um, actually, by a few, um, that's, that's an understatement, I wrote a lot for The Atlantic back then. Um, And I started writing for all of these different places. I had a cover story in The New York Times, um, Sunday Review. So a lot of these things started happening. And that's when I was finally able to break through to The New Yorker. Um, I'd been trying to do it forever, but it took years. Um, and it took, it wasn't right after mastermind came out that I got my first piece in the New Yorker. There was, there was a time lag. Um, but yes, that enabled me to get other things, which eventually enabled me to get noticed by the New Yorker, which eventually led to a contract with the New Yorker. But the contract came after I'd been writing for a while and I'd been writing, I think, um, I think I'd written, I don't know how many pieces, but a lot I'd written a Over 100,000 words for them before I got a contract. Oh,
1: wow. Okay, and then so what was the moment that you were like, you know what? Being a New Yorker writer, good. Being a professional poker player, great. (laughs)
0: Um, That moment never happened. Um, It was more of a, this is the book I want to write. And I realized that in order to write it, I actually, this is going to be immersive journalism. I can't half-ass it. In order to write the book I want, I'm going to have to completely go into this world. And I can't do both. I can't be at the New Yorker and doing that. So basically, I didn't I never left. I just talked to, um, you know, the the powers that be and said, Hey, you know, I'm gonna do this. And they basically froze my contract and said, Sure, go do whatever. I mean, I wasn't getting paid. But they said, you know, whenever you want to come back, That's great. Um, And I had no idea how it was going to go. And it was scary because, you know, I wasn't getting paid and I was entering this completely new world and I never could have predicted how it was going to go or whether, you know, it would have been worth it or not. But I needed to try and I couldn't try without actually just going full out and really diving in. And it ended up being much more than a year and I didn't, I actually didn't intend to become... A professional player, but it happened.
1: Okay, so your your thesis at Columbia was uh, on the limits of self control, self control, illusory control, and risky financial decision making. Now, r- risky financial decision making—it's almost like you were studying to be a poker player.
0: It's true. It's true. My dissertation is actually so aligned with the skills of poker that you know, if you look at things in retrospect, it does seem like a lot of the things were building up. Um, But it's not, you know, you know how life works. It's not never, it's never that neat in the moment. It just looks that way in retrospect. But yes, um, so Walter and I originally, so I came to grad school in 2008, just as the markets just tanked and, you know, this horrible financial crisis was happening. And so, um, you know, I told Walter, wouldn't it be interesting to figure out why this happened? and what's going on and he said yeah I think it's great let's let's figure it out let's work on self-control and kind of risky financial decision making and we went into it thinking that people who are high in self-control would be much better at making these sorts of decisions and were probably what prevented the crash from being even worse than it was um the obviously the title of the dissertation is the limits of self-control that's not what we found um instead you know we found these really interesting effects with the illusion of control of how, you know, very smart people would fall for the illusion of control um, when you put them in stochastic environments like the stock market. And so, yeah, I spent multiple years looking at, you know, how do we make decisions with incomplete information when there's a lot of uncertainty, when things are changing all the time, when you're emotional, when you're under time pressure, when you're under a lot of emotional pressure, when you're stressed, all of these different elements of it. And if you look at poker, um, a lot of the things that I studied were incredibly relevant to the world of poker. Um, Who knew?
1: Yeah. And then so when you say there was a uh, a moment where you're like, oh, this is the book that I want to write. What did that how did how did that sort of bubble up for you? Where did that come from?
0: So I never wanted to write about poker. I didn't know anything about poker. I didn't care about poker. I'm not someone who cares about games, really. You know, I don't play board games. I don't play video games. The only time I'd played a video game was when I was assigned to write a uh, piece about first-person shooters for The New Yorker. Um, And so I played first-person shooters and found that that was actually quite interesting. But I was doing it as research, and that did not... um, make me want to be a professional gamer in any way shape or form i was glad i was glad to do it and then i was glad to stop doing it um so it's not something that interests me any types of games i'm not i don't watch any sports you know i just i don't care about the gaming world um but i wanted to write about luck and i wanted to write about the role luck plays in our lives um the limits of control limits of what we can control how we can learn to tell the difference between what we can and can't control but that's that's not a book Um, that's kind of a philosophical life inquiry Um, so I needed to find a book and so my writing process is really disorganized as far as the writing is concerned but the one thing that I always always do no matter what it is that I'm writing, if it's a you know, newspaper short piece, a magazine article, a book. doesn't matter. I do a lot of reading first. So I do you know hours, weeks, months, sometimes years of reading before I write a single word. And the years only, only come for books when um, I realize that I've been reading about a topic for a really long time. But that's always the first step. So I started reading a lot about chance, about luck, about all of these things, And I came across John von Neumann's theory of games, that's the foundational text of game theory, and found out that von Neumann was a poker player and that he loved poker and that he actually, that poker was the inspiration for game theory, that he thought that this was the one game that was capable of lending the correct insight into human strategic decision-making and would serve as a good enough metaphor for the most complex types of strategic decisions that it would basically help prevent nuclear war. Um, and so he went out to solve poker, and that's how game theory was born. Poker, by the way, No Limit Hold'em is still unsolved. Um, so this is kind of the last one of the last frontiers of gaming. Um, it's what AIs are trying to do right now. It's kind of their benchmark. Can we solve No Limit Hold'em? The answer so far has been no. But that really piqued my interest, and I thought, oh, well, this you know absolute genius polymath, um, if he thinks that there's something to poker and that that's a good way, a good lens of looking at these types of questions, why don't I look into this poker thing? And when I started doing that, something clicked. I thought, you know what? This could be a book. Me going into this completely new world, learning how to play, finding someone to mentor me and to teach me, um and seeing what happens and through that exploring chance and exploring um the role that it plays in our lives so that's how poker came about
1: as a side note how often do you have that thought oh this could be a book and then maybe follow it a little bit and then it sort of you know you get sidelined or or something what how often does that happen to you
0: you know, very rarely these days because I've written three books at this point, and I love it, but I also know that each book takes years and takes your life, basically, and that it's it's something that you have to live with. Um, and so whereas before, you know, if I knew what I knew now, I don't know if I would have taken on Mastermind because every single topic you have to do the test of am I going to want people to be asking me about it in 10 years am I still going to be excited by it in 10 years Um, you know am I going to be excited about it in two years and I think most things like 99% of ideas aren't meant to be books they should be articles they should be something shorter Um, and so it's not at this point I the way that I think about it is this is not a book and then if it's something that I just can't get rid of that keeps coming back over and over and that I just I realize that my interest is growing rather than waning that's when I think okay maybe this is a book that's what happened with luck that's what happened with the confidence game Um, I just realized that I was really drawn into this world of con artists Um, but that wasn't meant to be a book at the beginning and so I think you know I almost disprove it um, because I think that way too many things become books that should not have been and it makes it a much worst book. And you can often tell that the writer became bored. Um, and you can always just tell there's just one idea in the book. Um, and this should have just stayed as an article. Maybe it was a New Yorker article, you know, maybe it was an Atlantic article, maybe it was a New York times article, you know, maybe it was a, an article, you know, somewhere in some regional press, because it's really about one part of the country, but there's just one idea there. Um, and I think you really have to make sure to think long and hard about whether something should be a book and most of it is is this something that i'm passionate and excited about that i'm going to stay excited about for years something that's merits a book that has enough there to become a book and also should i should i write it because a lot of times There are great book ideas that aren't for you. So before I went on poker, I had another book idea, and I actually went quite a way down that in that direction. And it's going to be an amazing book for someone else, but I realized that I just didn't care enough about the topic. Um, I still I think it's going to it it passed every other test. Um, Someone is going to write that book, and it's going to be great. But I just I did not care, and so I was not going to be that someone. And, so, and the other, I think, test you have to take is do I have the temperament? You know, do I have the personality? Do I have the, am I the right person to just write books in general? Because a book takes a long time and it's very solitary. And I ha- know a lot of writers, some brilliant writers who started writing a book um, or wrote one book and said, never again. Um, I love the newsroom, you know, or I love, go- you know, magazine work, I can't do books. So I think you also have to realize that, Different people like different things, and that's okay. I think that it's a really false metric of success to say, oh, you have to have written a book in order to be successful. I I know some incredible writers who have never written a book, and I think they're much better writers than I am.
1: I'm just curious, what was the the topic that you followed for a while?
0: I'd rather not say I want someone else to come to it on their own.
1: (laughs) Um, Okay, so how did your... uh poker adventure play out differently than you might have expected starting at the beginning?
0: Um, I, at the beginning, had no expectations. I did not know if I would like poker. I did not know if I would have any talent for poker or aptitude for it. I just did not know what to expect. Um, It ended up that I became quite good at poker, um, that I did have an aptitude for it, that, um, I mean, I ended up becoming um, an international... Champion, um, winning an international title, becoming sponsored by PokerStars, which is one of the biggest brands. I have a in question. Uh, sorry to yeah.
1: interrupt, but I'm curious were your were your friends, the people who really know you, were they surprised when that happened?
0: Ah, uh, sure, yeah, but they were very supportive. I mean, I don't have a lot of close friends. I have a lot of you know very friendly acquaintances, but all my close friends thought it was very cool. Um, but yeah, everyone was surprised. I mean, this is not. Everyone knows I hate Vegas and hate casinos and hate. But wait, there's there's two that.
1: things to be surprised about here. One is the fact that you started playing poker. Very surprising, given what you said about uh, how much you like detested games, or at the very least, d- completely indifferent to them. Okay, so that's surprising. But the the thing is, uh, I having just talked to you for 45 minutes about your everything you've done. There's not a single part of me that's surprised that you were like, oh, well, yeah, I'm going to go be a poker player. And then you turned out to be really, really good at it, kicked ass, <laughs> won all the, the tournaments and that sort of stuff. That doesn't seem at all uh, like any sort of uh, uh, anything incongruous with your previous, uh, who you've shown yourself to be in your, your previous trajectory. Well,
0: I think as a psychologist, I think you need to be very attuned to storytelling and how narratives sh- form in retrospect and how we tell stories about ourselves i'm only capable of making this coherent narrative now um if you had talked to me five years ago i would have laughed at you if you had said i'd become a poker player no but wait so i can't see a lot of these themes you know the themes only become i'm able to draw them out right now um but you know how many people go to grad school and study risky decision making and then become professional poker players i actually don't know a single one I don't know anyone else, not in my, you know, I think I am the only, as far as I know, I'm the only psychology PhD playing professional poker in the world. Um, So it's not like studying these sorts of things makes it inevitable that you go in this direction. How many, you know, it's it's very, most writers never do an immersive journalism uh, project. So a lot of these things, in retrospect, the themes come together and the narrative coheres, but you know, looking in the future, I don't think it's, you still can't predict it. And so it's still, it's still very shocking when it happens, because it's not something you would have ever imagined.
1: So I didn't mean to insinuate that uh, you are for sure going to become a professional poker player, per se. Um, I guess, yes, uh, there's no doubt that the a a, a posteriori probability of you Going from, uh, that is, is, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's yeah. It's I just, critical, I just but. meant
0: that at the moment, you know, it seems, it seems less surprising in retrospect, but at the moment, believe me, it was very surprising.
1: Um, no, there's not about well. it. It's, it is. I am so incredibly excited to read the story because it is like, it is such a, in terms of the actual things that that, 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 that that happened there. I am so excited to hear your rendering of, of all of it and putting it together. I just wanted to make the note that the fact that you kicked ass at something you previously had no experience <laughs> with should not be surprising to anyone. That was the specific oh, thing a, that I wanted it was to draw. Surprising,
0: to it was very surprising to me. Especially, I mean, it's such a different world. You know, you. I, who knows how you perform My the fact that I know a lot of this stuff theoretically doesn't mean I'm able to execute on it practically. I mean von Neumann, John von Neumann was an awful poker player. People loved playing with him because he lost all of his money playing poker and he never became good, even though this is the guy who invented game theory, right? The guy who who actually created the rubric that the best poker players today use. You know, GTO Game Theory Optimal. That's like the slang that is that everyone throws around these days. You know that's the way you want to play, and von Neumann himself just was hopeless. Um, he just loved the game because he found it really interesting. So, you know, I think, I think that I had a lot of the things that, in retrospect, make me successful, but um, they didn't have to, right? We never, you never know how you're going to. This is something that Walter taught me kind of one of the great lessons I took from the great Walter Michelle. You never know how someone's going to behave in any given situation unless you put them in that situation. And there's no such thing as personality traits that are just universal to a human being. Um, He was very against the big five, the big seven, all stable personality traits. And that's the school that I came up with, you know, people who who study that and I don't tend to get along because, you know, what what Walter really stressed is that you can't strip behavior from context. That's why the marshmallow studies were so important because they were a hot diagnostic situation. And so I might have, you know, I may be very extroverted in certain certain situations and very introverted in others. I might be very risk averse in some situations, very risk taking in others. I might be very neurotic about certain things and very easygoing about others. Might be very open to certain types of experiences and completely closed to other types of experiences. And until you put me In that situation, you don't know what my behavioral profile is going to look like in that situation. And so no one knew what kind of a poker player I would be. And, you know, if you had to bet on it, sure, I had some of the stuff that would make me good, like the psychology background. But I was female. Most females don't make it in the world of professional poker. Three percent of professional poker players are female. Three percent of any given field is female. That's tiny. And that's smaller than almost any other profession. Um, And... It's not a very hospitable environment to women a lot of the time. There are a lot of things that could have gone wrong. And and I because I hated casinos and have never been in that situation, I had no idea, you know, what would have happened had I realized that I love gambling? Poker is not gambling. But what would have happened if I realized that, like, I like chasing highs, that I have an addictive personality? Um, luckily, I don't. And I don't. And the answer to all of those things is No. I really don't care about it. I still hate casinos. Um, but there are lots. There were lots of unknowns going into the moment. And I also got very lucky that the coach that I ended up working with, Eric Seidel, um, had an approach that really meshed with mine. And he made me fall in love with the game because of him and because of the way he approached it. I think I could have gone wrong by choosing someone else um, and ended up not. Not enjoying it and then not becoming good because I didn't enjoy it um, because I think you do have to enjoy it in order to really excel. Um, So a lot of a lot of variables could have shifted and we'd be telling a very different story right now. I would have still written the book. It just would have been a very different book.
1: Well, I am so phenomenally excited to read it. It sounds like every page is going to be packed full of interesting experiences and tidbits like the fact that John von Neumann was a shitty poker player. <laughs> um, I do. So we're bumping up against the sort of time limit here. Do you have time mm-hmm. for maybe one more question? Sure. Um, awesome. So I, I'm curious about sort of trends that you see in popular psychology writing and sort of basically what I'm thinking of here is that it's very much this precedent of using sort of third-person narrative exposition to support your psychological arguments. You know, like you have some story like, okay, 1972, the CEO of whatever company. And then, you know, you, you illustrate uh, your argument, you set up your argument with that. And this is sort of the, the you know, sort of Gladwell-esque thing. Um, but what I'm curious about is what role do you think sort of first person narratives are going to play going forward, right? Because that's a huge part of what you're doing, like you're saying an immersive journalism program. And it seems to me that it has sort of these these first person narratives have the much sought after quality today of, um, uh, I guess you should say uh, the authority of lived experience. And uh, so yeah, do you see that happening in your own writing, other people's writings, where do you think that'll take psychological writing in the future?
0: You know, I, I think. I don't know. Um, is the short answer. I think we need to be really careful about, you know, going in any one direction. I think the lesson from the past is that, you know, write whatever suits the material the best in the way that it suits it best. And there's no one style fits all. I mean, Malcolm Gladwell is a phenomenal storyteller. Sometimes too good because some nuance gets lost. But I, you know, no one can take away his storytelling ability from him. He is, I think, one of one of our greatest storytellers. Most writers aren't. And so then it ends up looking formulaic and lo- looking Gladwellian because it just looks like, oh, yeah, of course, you're using that formula of, you know, story and then psychological lesson. But when Malcolm does that, it doesn't look that way. It doesn't look formulaic um, because the story's so engrossing and he does it so well but that works for him. It doesn't work for a lot of other people. First person narrative, yeah, I'd rather read Thinking Fast and Slow than anyone else on decision psychology, including myself, because Danny Kahneman has lived it and has studied it and has won the Nobel Prize for it. And you know, get it from from the mouth of of the guru. Of course, that's what I want. But do I want, you know, do I want someone who has zero knowledge about that suddenly writing in the first person? about how I decided to test out all of these different studies on myself and here's what I found? No, I think that that's going to be, that's going to lead to very facile conclusions. So did I think I was ever going to write a first person book? Absolutely not. I'm not a first person writer. I don't write personal essays. That's not something I've ever done until now. Um, And this entire book is in the first person. And it's about me. And I'm never a character in anything I write. So this was just totally different. And it ended up that way. It wasn't planned to be that way. Um, So I think you need to let the material you need to let what you're doing dictate the form, not the other way around. Um, That's how you're going to make the best book, the best article, the best whatever it is. Um, And I think that you have to be very careful of doing something because it's the trend or writing about something because it's the trend. You know what? Write about what you want to write about. If it's interesting to you, if you care about it, it's going to be interesting to other people. I mean, Sean Carroll makes me care about physics. I've never taken a physics class in my life. So I think that that's kind of the answer to the question at the end of the day.
1: That was my interview with Maria Konnikova, uh, I hope you enjoyed. I certainly found that one to be a uh, a really fun interview. So I hope you got something out of it. Um, though I will say that it did put me in mind of something uh, I recently heard Krista Tippett say. And if you don't know Krista Tippett, her podcast is on Being, and uh, it's a you know, interview podcast in a in a sort of similar personal style to this one. though the difference is that in in my opinion, Krista Tippett is probably the most, phenomenal interviewer that I've ever come across with perhaps the exception of Oprah. At any rate, uh, the thing she says is essentially that she tries not to get people while they are on book tour uh, because when you get someone on book tour, they have an agenda, right? They are doing the interview to try and encourage people to uh, buy their, their most recent book and that is going to you know sort of influence the way they approach the more personal conversations and i think you can definitely hear that that sort of thing play out in this conversation where i i want to take these sort of winding personal excursions through Maria's history and she's like yes but you know there's this actually this really fascinating book that I just spent the last three years writing what if we talk about that which I don't blame her for Um, and uh, uh, I do think that everyone should buy the book Um, but I'm also glad that uh, you know to some extent I stuck to my guns I was like well no we're actually going to dig into this shit because this is what I this is what I want to hear about at any rate uh, there's a lot that I loved about Maria and sort of Getting deeper into the way she thinks And the first thing is that just I mean up front I am a sucker for people With clarity of vision And I think that Maria definitely Falls into this um, This sort of category Or when you listen to her talk about Her life and her work And even other people's lives and works It's just like okay yeah here The world seems to make sense uh, The way she operates in it And um, uh, I, I think that there is uh, something powerful in that and it's certainly a quality in a, in a thinker that I am attracted to. And um, the other person that this quality reminds me of was my guest from last week's episode Steven Pinker who uh, Maria studied under directly and um, uh, certainly learned a lot from about this sort of intersection between uh, public presentation of psychological ideas and, um, uh, you know, just the different ways of, of, of bringing that into a career. And uh, so some of the, the other things are that there's just the level of fluency between the way Maria speaks and the way Steve speaks. It's very unique, and it's sort of this... They almost bulldoze through a conversation. I don't necessarily mean that negatively, but um, when they get started on a train of thought, they know where they're going. They give the impression that... Uh, they're on this sort of path and they're going to keep it going and uh, th- that there is always this sense of authority, right? When they speak, you get the sense that, oh, they are speaking from a place of, of knowledge and uh, having thought about it and and all this sort of stuff. And I think that that's a, uh, it, it's, it's certainly a, a hard mystique to cultivate, but I think both of them uh, have done it quite well. And I think, uh, uh, you know, Maria's at a, a slightly earlier stage of her career than Steve, and I think that, that will continue to sort of be cultivated in, in her further further work. Um, but the other thing is that there's a, a kind of an armored sense in which they approach a conversation or an interview, which is that you don't feel like you are penetrating or even have a chance of penetrating Something that they don't want to present to you um that you're going to get something that hasn't been sort of polished for the external world um and that, that's uh, nice on one because everything they say is interesting. I don't think that I think that the 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 positive thing about this is that you listen to them and they are giving you uh interesting well thought out well supported positions and stories that they know are um useful and uh have come up and and will continue to come up again and uh that makes it a very compelling interview however the uh the other thing that you know one kind of hopes for coming into an interview is that you're going to get this um the unpolished things right because if we want all the polished things well we'll just go to the book right uh and so part of what you want in this format is um you know Not necessarily a slip up or a flub or a mistake, but uh, yeah, there's just they are very strong on that one side of having things polished, and it comes off to me as um, armored. I think the and I think the the connection that they both share on that is quite interesting. Um, The other, I think, point that's sort of along these lines is that I thought it was kind of funny how I was trying to describe. So she, she was making this claim that was like, oh, well, I didn't go into poker because I was interested in gambling. I was interested in the ideas that led me there. And then I said something to the effect of, well, there's literally nothing surprising about the fact that you decided one day, hey, I'm going to become a poker player, and ended up kicking ass at it. And, I, and, and it was, what's funny is that she sort of became defensive at this, uh, this claim, because I think the way maybe she interpreted it was that you know one thing that you want in a book is that there's something surprising about it, right? You want you want uh, a, an unexpected story, a um, idea that you didn't previously know or understand, something like that, right? And um, so you know if I maybe she felt like I was leveling this claim that she was not doing something sufficiently unique or, or interesting, which certainly was not my intention at all um but simply that it's like oh like like she seems just so fucking competent at everything uh it you could set her in any environment that that she has made up her mind that she's going to succeed in it's like oh yeah totally i i believe that she's going to succeed in that uh so anyway i thought that that sort of slight misapprehension or miscommunication between us uh was was you know was slightly funny at any rate, I think the biggest thing that I took from Maria, um, my, my, my interview with Maria, was that maybe I would sum up her um, approach to success with two rules. One is do the thing, and two is do whatever it takes to do the thing. Um, so I don't, I don't think there's actually a lot of mystery in the way Maria's career has unfolded. Which is that? Well, she knew she wanted to be a writer. She knew she wanted to sort of eh, okay, like there is going to be a psychological. So that's kind of the space of ideas she's interested in. And so, well, what did she do? She wrote a lot. She studied psychology, and um, got increasingly more sophisticated uh, and higher profile opportunities. There is, there is, there is no, uh, there is not, there is not really any hidden subtext to that, in in as far as I can tell, and. She was doing, at any point, either one of two things. One, she was doing the thing that she wanted to do. She was writing articles and trying to get them published. She was, um, you know, working on psychological topics that she thought was, uh, were interesting and important. Or she was uh, doing what she thought it would take to position herself to do those uh, in the future, right? So kind of the, the PhD thing was like this, where it's like, well, uh, this is a useful tool... For me to position myself to wanting to, you know, be this is going to give me the credibility, the platform, the uh, whatever you want to call it, to be a New Yorker writer in the future. And um, uh, the connection there is not—it's uh, uh, just not too far away, right? It's just—it's it's sort of—it sort of makes sense. And so I, I think that there is, uh, yeah, this sort of directness uh, about her, uh, her approach to things, which is which is quite refreshing. And uh, I definitely found it. Uh, to some extent, inspiring. So thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Please do go out there and uh, check out Maria's new book, The Biggest Bluff. It is going to be phenomenal. I haven't read it yet. Uh, I will confirm that it is indeed phenomenal as soon as I have, um, and it will be at the top of my list. um, But everyone should go out there and check it out. So, thank you for listening this week to Cognitive Evolution, and I will be back with a new guest next week.